Daily DVR Dives into Mindhunter is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Look good when you step out in the morning. Elevate your style. Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR today and save 20% on your order. No minimum. Use code DVR20. That's all you got to do. Use code DVR20 today and save 20% off your order. If you've got an event coming up, if you've got... If you just want to look good, go to cufflinks.com and they'll help you out. They've even got a blog over there that details how to get prepared for these big events and order everything for everyone. You know, that can be a hassle. Let cufflinks.com help you do that. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Welcome to Daily DVR Does Mindhunter. My name is Heath Solo and my beautiful co-host is Axel Foley and, uh... We are here to talk a little Mindhunter Season 1, Episode 5. And remember, you can find more about us at DVRpodcast.com. And you know what? Also consider supporting us. Becoming a patron at patreon.com slash DVR. That's patreon.com slash DVR. And then if you really want to reach out to us in a special way, you can send us feedback. DVRpodcast at gmail.com. That's DVR. D as in dog, V as in Victor, R as in Rasmussen. Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> no, no, not R, R as in Robert. Sorry. All right. So you heard that little chuckle, and that's my partner in crime, Mr. Axel Foley. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing fantastic, Solo. Thanks for doing the intro, baby. I'm ready to talk about Mindhunter. This is a great episode, a short one, but a great one. You know, sometimes short ones can be great ones, Axel. That's what I've heard. I'm a tall one, but I've heard short ones can be great, too. Yeah, I'm a little above short, but, you know, I can play short on television. <laughs> it helps to be So we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, so we're going to tackle this a little differently, right, Folo? Because I believe, not to spoil episode six, but five and six almost are, companion pieces and it it takes Mindhunter this episode takes on a little different approach so we're gonna try something different it's yes. like we're Bill and Holden again baby <laughs> yes we're, we're blazing new ground well you know what I was thinking about it and sometimes it's fun to switch it up a little bit and the way we've been doing this so far for the four episodes was to basically kind of go along with the notes scene by scene and I thought Especially for these two episodes, which are, you know, they're really companion piece. Um, I thought maybe what I'll do is I'll do a quick little kind of overview about what happens in the episode. And then we'll dive into it deeper. Because this is really a one, th really this episode has a little bit um about what's going on in Quantico and stuff, but really this episode is mostly about our good friend Benji and the death of Beverly <laughs> <laughs> Yes, very Sorry. straight. Yeah, this is annoying, weird. right? Yes. And you can see why it gets on Tench's nerves, right? It's he's a person who is so in tune with really with people's pain. And he's really an empathetic guy, and he really can feel the insincerity there. Um, but so that's what I figured I'd do, that I just kind of 
open up and do a quick run through of the episode. And then afterwards, we're going to go back into it. We're going to see what we can take from it. So I will begin. Great. You got um, you got 17 seconds. Go. And here I go. I'm going to try to do as good as Roberto does on a pot of cast, which is go like less than five minutes here, maybe even quicker, um, because then we can jump in. Well, basically, a great episode. We start out and Holden and Tench are riding in the car with Mark Ocasek. He is the cop that we saw two, I believe it was two episodes ago, where he explained this very horrific crime where this woman was found, her breasts were cut off, she was disfigured, it looked as though her uh, her body had been mutilated after she was murdered, and we're back on the case. Let's remember, we ended... Last episode with Wendy, Bill, and Holden together as a team in the elevator, having just given a huge grant, actually several huge grants, so their team is solidified. But when we start out this episode, Wendy's not there. It's Bill. It's uh, it's tension Holden on the case again. Rust Belt America. They're in Altoona, Pennsylvania. They're immediately finding out information about Benji, who is Beverly Jean's fiance. The cop says that they're on their way to interview him. So we jump kind of cold right into this, which is very interesting because a lot of what we've seen so far has been a slow build. They go, they interview Benji. Tench is aggressive. The cop is empathetic. Holden is scientific and tough. Then they go and interview Benji's mom. She's in a church. Again, we see the dynamic and we find out a little bit more about Benji, but what we've seen in the first uh, interview, which is that Benji is kind of a punk. He cries a lot, as you were making reference to. He keeps on saying, Beverly Jean. And she's being described (laughs) as very beautiful and vibrant and alive. And here's Benji, who looks to be a total loser. And the mother kind of leans into that as well. Um, From the mother, she mentions uh, that one of the things that the mother mentions is that um, Benji wets the bed. This brings us a little bit into Bill's world. But more importantly, the mother brings up Frank. Frank is Benji's brother-in-law, but is also kind of his brother because he moved in with the family when they were all teenagers. He started dating Benji's sister very early. And it seems like the mother actually likes Frank more than she likes Benji. She also describes Benji's sister, Rose, as kind of very submissive. Um, Tench has a great line where he says, I bet Beverly had poor old pipsqueak Benji wrapped around her golden triangle. <laughs> so as you can see, well. we've got a that dynamic here. Very strong Frank, weak Rose, weak, weak mother, weak Benji. Frank seems to be the one who is at the center here already. But the cops are still working on a notion that it was a drifter that killed her. Tench is just trying to convince them it was someone local. So we're very early into the case. We get back to Quantico and Wendy wants to make standard questionnaires for the killers. This becomes an important part of the show. And this is the 
initial um, our initial entry into this. Holden and Tench want to wing it. Wendy wants to make a uh, a standardized sheet. There also comes up a case where Wendy wants more to do the research and the interviews. And Tench and Holden, of course, are attracted to the work in the field. So already that unified front we saw in the elevator is being a little bit pulled apart because the realities of work have hit them, right? Um, yeah, loving an elevator. Yeah, loving an elevator. Living it up as you're going down, baby. There you go. Um, we get a little bit of a scene with Holden and Debbie where she's on speed and they and Holden experiments a little bit with some of the stuff that he learned from Kemper, talking about mothers and 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 what they're attracted to, and also talking about how Holden always wants to be thinking. Holden goes back to Quantico, and they find out from a phone call from Okasik that Benji's brother-in-law Frank da 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 had a record of hurting woman, women. He actually hit a woman with a wrench and ended up not in jail, but in Warren State Psychiatric Hospital. They fly out to interview Frank immediately. Right away, he's fitting the profile. This is a fantastic scene, and he goes right into how Beverly Jean was a slut using terrible language about her, and everything is kind of coming together here. But strangely, they're still stuck on Benji. And they go back to Benji and try to interview him again. We then get a really great scene in a bar with Holden and Tench where they kind of talk about the differences and also the Capo Kasich, where they talk about the differences in how perceived uh, desire in sexuality changes their view of the case. So if a woman wants sex or if a man wants sex... If a woman is promiscuous or not, or a man is, and they're holding, obviously, is more progressive and Tench kind of sits in the middle, but it's a good indication of the way in which they're pushing the theories, but also pushing normal, everyday uh, ideas about sexuality and intimate notions that are hard for the cops to get a handle on. Um mm-hmm. We get a quick hotel scene with Holden and Tench, which is really funny, and we'll talk about that when they're sitting on the bed together. Um, but then we find that the cop, Okasik, says to them, listen, I have a feeling, and I want you to follow me with it. And he's been watching them the whole time. And the feeling he has is he wants to go interview Rose, Benji's sister and Frank's wife. When they interview Rose... Everything comes together. The cop uses the baby and her life there and what they recognize together as a way to empathize and and gain entry into her. She is about to talk about Frank to them, but then she pulls back. He has a little conversation with her and they leave. They go back to the police station. What do you know? Ten minutes later, Rose shows up. She And she tells them basically what happened. It was Frank and and Benji together 
called her and asked her to help clean up after Beverly Jean was killed. She doesn't give a lot of detail. She says she doesn't know what's what happened. But as we see this, her talking, we also get shots of them walking the crime scene, seeing the bathtub that she talks about cleaning up. They find the murder weapon. And we end with her saying, I don't know who killed her. End episode. Great job, Mr. Axel Foley. Hey, I like, relived the episode through your words. All right. That went pretty well. And now I think we could just kind of go through it and talk about it. There's a lot of interesting points here. Um, but this really is, there's a little bit of this stuff with Holden and Debbie, and we get a little stuff at Quantico. But really, this is this one case and about what it, it amounts to six or seven interviews that they hold over the course of this episode. Yeah, and and, and and this episode is is very different from the others because it's it's into a case we already know about. There's no uh interviewing serial killers. There's it's just straight up police work. And it's kind of a breath of fresh air uh for this show because we needed something uh it just added, oh okay, now they're they're into it, and there's going to be a reason why we get this um, type of format. But it just really uh, had me going. I was really in the mood. You know, I love the Law and Orders and all that good stuff. So this was done exceptionally well. But I just loved them working a case together. It just it got me real excited. And I think this is around the time where I was I was hooked on the show, but then I, it pushed me to. I will watch this show every season it's on. Yeah. I just loved them working together and and I love this detective Okasic. Um like you said he he and it, what pisses Bill off big time is he calls ahead when Benji's finally back in town, he calls ahead and he's guiding the questions in the interview and it's really frustrating them. And as you said, um as the interviews begin to go, and then when he gets the idea to go see um, Rose, and then he kind of, because of that, like he he actually learns from Bill and Holden, yep. has a hunch, goes, and is not like coddling her. He's like basically uses her kid to be like, "Hey, not for you, not for Frank, for for your child," and it really you know got her to you know, to go to them, uh, which I, th- I thought was a great move. Cause I, I liked this character Okasik, but I'm like, man, but he's in this small town. He's never, this is a big deal for him. And of course everyone goes to church together. Everyone knows each other. Um, so I, I, I really, uh, love the, what he learns from Bill and Holden. And, you know, it, it's funny cause you know, Bill's frustrated and w- it's great when they when they throw the drifter part away, Axel. It's because wait a minute, if you're a drifter, Pickens are slim in Altoona. <laughs> Why not go to a big city, you know? And you could have your pick of the litter there. And and plus, where would the drifter know where the dump is? So that that's a great point. It's simple, but it makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting thing too. Is that that does get. You don't know what is going to become a point of contention. 
So that was originally what uh, Okasik had said when they were sitting at the bar. I think that was episode was was it episode two or episode three? I think maybe it was three when we first see his appearance. Um, he had mentioned oh, it was a drifter or something. And, you know, you think about it solo, that was such a popular notion back in the day, wasn't it? That yeah. like, you know, especially like in California, they're like, don't pick up a hitchhiker. It's going to be Manson <laughs> family, right? Like it's always a drifter yeah. passing through that gets you. Um, but most of it's a, we know now that most crimes, I think if you talk to people in the general public and ask them, who kills people, they would say someone you know. Yeah. No, I was right? just talking about that with my wife the other day. We forget what we were watching, but it's always and you know, when when a woman dies, they always look at the husband or the boyfriend. And mm-hmm. it, it it's just it a lot of times, I mean, I, I wonder what the percentage is, but you're right. Most of the time it's someone you know. And and this one definitely with the mutilation and everything, could it be a crime of passion? Would a drifter really take his time to do that? Um, yeah, but did, they yeah, didn't it, think like that back then, right? The way they no, thought back exactly. then was that if you loved someone, the last thing you would do would be to hurt them like that. Like, you know, that like and that's kind of the idea that Okasik has and right. why he's so nice to Benji and and um even like he he says also that he told the mom certain details that and they were mad about it right they were oh they were upset that people were finding out details in this small town and it was a really a difference between Holden and Tench seeing this as a part of their greater case log now and kind of their hunt that they're on and almost in a sense not realizing that they just really stumbled into a small town crime, right? That they had to still be... Tench has the ability to see an Okasik himself as that kind of beat cop guy that Holden doesn't see himself as. And it allows their entry more so into this world, even though it frustrates Tench because he wants a certain kind of police work to be done along those same lines, right? Like, it's interesting. He empathizes with the guy because he's like, yeah, we're kind of the same. But then when the guy acts like he should, which is he's probably going to talk to his friend or go to a bar just like he talked to them, right? And talk about Mm -hmm. the details because it happened to someone in the town. But it makes Tench angry at the same time because he's attached to the idea that this is their greater serial killer work. But um, to me, yeah. the guy Okasik is really like such a, what a great actor here. And he's, this is one of the few episodes of Mindhunter where I feel like he's like kind of the big guest star. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. Great. And he, yeah, no, he really is. And it just, uh, one thing I have for you, Axel, uh, <laughs> So when they're interviewing Benji for the first time and he, he does the crying thing and it ends, were were you as annoyed as the detectives were of him crying? Like, he just seems so off. But are, are we like, is it going to be that easy? Is it going to be him? 
I mean, what what were your feelings as a detective? Uh, were, were you were you already judging him uh, based on laying out the donuts and being all like goody goody and broken? Um, I, what, I what were some of your thoughts? I wasn't as um, I didn't know what to think. I felt I definitely felt like he was not stable and kind of a weak dude. You know. It seemed to mm-hmm. me that right away he was not just upset, but intimidated by them. And something did seem off, but my spidey sense was not as uh was not as clear as Tench's. Well, your spidey sense is usually pretty good too, but you know, sometimes you know, throw you in Altoona, Pennsylvania, you're off a little bit. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it did it did seem like something was something was weird there. Um and I think part of the thing for me about this story and why Tench gets so upset is because I think Tench views his son as Benji grown up. Oh, interesting. Right? We're yeah. We're we've already learned a bit about his home life and the problems he has. And being that Tench is such a strong man and he's very masculine, his son seems to have these more what he would perceive as feminine quietness, right? And not and mm-hmm. doesn't really look at you, you know, things we now know is his son has other issues. I'm saying in terms of not this story, but in life. Um, So that's what I saw. Like when the mom mentioned he wet the bed, there kept on being these little things that get him upset, you know? And it's just like the way his son would kind of like turn away from him, which is almost like a kid like, yeah, mommy, you know? So it's like keeps on kind of nagging at him, the connection between them. And I, they don't, push that too much in the episode but i think it's prevalent enough that it kind of throws him and again shows the way that i was saying like i was saying last episode which is that tench is really much more emotional than holden is and much more emotionally connected to what's happening in every case than holden is yeah it's almost like bill has his stressors and it's with his son yeah and and it's affecting him and holden is more yeah, and Holden seems to be more of an observer, but yet, it, yeah, it's like different Holden. Like, he's really focused on when they're interviewing people, he's really focused on how they're reacting and stuff as Bill's kind of, you know, barking at them a little bit. Yeah. And, he, he's, and he's really into it, which you can just – and again, another dynamic of this, this uh, partnership – working together really well but yeah with bill you could tell they've been you know giving us little hints about brian you know not hugging him and then him in the bar telling uh holden you know about what you know they adopted him and and he's not speaking and and it's just you're it's a great point it's almost like you know future brian (laughs) right there and he's like oh crap i don't want my son to end up like this and and of course you got your typical Beverly Jean, she's, you know, good looking girl next door. And why would she be with this guy? And they're questioning, you know, well, we were going to be engaged. But, you know, when they're interviewing Frank, well, they haven't set a date. And um, and going on to Frank, I mean, it's your typical uh, 
you know, late 70s, mustache, macho guy. Yeah, who the greaser. It, yeah, and it, the grease, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because at first you're like, and with the when when they're talking with the mother and the way he starts out his interview, it's like you know he protects him, and you're like, okay, he's looking out for him. Yeah. But it's not just that; it's not just the big brother looking out for you. He's like, well, he's a he's a pussy. Uh, he's weak. I need to protect him, but he also will manipulate him and make fun of him, and yeah. you know, and all this stuff. So it's it's you're like, oh, this dude's just protecting him. You know, maybe, you know, Benji killed her and he covered it up to protect him. But you're starting to realize, wait a minute, there's something not right with Frank. And they bring up, of course, you know, his his past and how he, you know, hit the girl with the wrench. But then, no, she ran into the wrench. And so then I was thrown off a little bit. I'm like, I kind of believed him at first, his first interview. I'm like, I, I didn't know quite what to believe. And then I'm like, well, maybe this dude isn't your typical um, maybe just trying to protect him, but so I was going back and forth. How are you feeling about Frank? Were you just in line with, oh, this dude has something to do with it, or were you like, oh, maybe this guy may not be this crazy dude? Uh, no, I right away I thought it was. I, I was. I said Frank is the uh, he is the head of this, and mm-hmm. whatever has gone on here is some kind of strange, incestuous relationship where Frank is kind of a brother father to the to both um, Rose and Benji and even their mother it seems like Frank kind of took over their family the way that the mother spoke about him the way Rose we see Rose at the end she's she's just seems so beaten down and and like the life sucked out of her you know take a little break to remind you of our presenting sponsor cufflinks.com you know sometimes I just go over to cufflinks.com I look at their awesome products and I say to myself how lucky I am to have this amazing sponsor they've got the coolest stuff over there man I just got you know what they sent me and I'm going to be giving these away some popcorn cufflinks listen to all our podcasts at dvrpodcast.com to find out how but they've got awesome stuff over there so go to cufflinks.com slash dvr and use code dvr20 They've got socks, ties, cufflinks, money clips, tie clips, so much cool stuff, uh, even like pocket squares, just any way to kind of make you look good. Those little touches always help. Don't forget the little details, baby, because cufflinks.com's got them for you. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Use code DVR20 and save 20% off your order. No minimum. One of the best parts about podcasting is getting to know the listeners and making new friends. And one of those friends is Andy. You may have heard me mention him before on one of our many podcasts. And Andy and his wife, Claire, are looking to adopt. So if you or anybody you know is considering adoption for their baby, please consider the loving family of Andrew and Claire. They're a home study approved adoptive family of three living on a farm in southern Minnesota with a dog, Barney, and two turtles. They're able to adopt from anywhere in the United States and would love to answer any questions you may have. To learn more about them, check out their Facebook page at Andrew and Claire Adopt or on Instagram at Andrew underscore and underscore Claire underscore adopt. You can also email them at Andrew and Claire Adopt at gmail.com. 
So again, if you or anyone you know is considering adoption for their baby, reach out at andrewandclaireadopt at gmail.com. Thanks. This episode was directed by uh, Tomas Lindholm, who is a Danish director, and he did a bunch of great films, uh, a war. He's worked with Mads Mikkelsen a bunch of times. He did Hijacking. He's a fantastic director. Oh, he also did 10 episodes of Borgen, which is a very famous uh, Danish kind of political drama. Um, and this is so, so much of this is this rust belt interiors. And it is very kind of like Scandinavian in a sense, right? It's really like dark mm-hmm. and cold and foreboding and the lighting all the it looks like all the lights are um everything's like top lit and so it's a little dark at the bottom there's like shadows on the floor um seems like the ceilings are more lit well than the than where people are looking at each other and uh, i just i i kind of digress for a second there i'm sorry but i th- no I, but axel i want to digress with you real quick because um when rose is kind of given the confession it's it, it's amazing what they do here. Um, you, you see, you know, Benji getting arrested, but they're in the future while she's explaining, and you're also hearing the sounds from the past yes. in the future. Yeah, that's great. You're right. That man. is un, unreal, and it, yeah. it almost feels like the 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 Fincher uh, directing tree. Like this guy has got Fincher qualities, uh, Lindholm. And it just, I loved the way they did that. It was so different. Yeah. And I felt like I was in the sequel to Seven a little bit. Yeah. Or like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yes. Yeah. You know, yes. which is, yeah. which is, I think Fincher takes a lot actually um, from those directors. And, and that's the same, that's a kind of feeling of dark melancholy that he is enjoys adding to his films. I mean, even if you think about a film like The Social Network, there's this kind of like coldness, right? Like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. people dressed in a lot of sweaters. He likes that. <laughs> Fincher likes that. You think about Fight Club, a lot of it takes place when it's cold, not when it's hot. Um, these are things that he enjoys, closed spaces. And that's a great, that's a great technique there. You're right, Solo. They're interviewing her at one time. In the future, you're seeing them walk through the house and at different points too, right? Like over a period of hours, if not days, when they're checking things in the house, right? And then mm-hmm. you hear those sounds. So you're lost in time and it becomes just muddled, right? And a lot of the color palettes in this episode, you think about the blues, the grays, the whites, how they kind of muddle together. And it creates that kind of feeling of that molasses. And this town, this place, this Rust Belt, Altoona, Pennsylvania, where time has kind of become unstuck, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's only characters like Frank. It's like a Stephen King story. It's these crazy, violent men who come in and like almost just try to control it and push it in a certain direction. And you see, that's what happened with Frank and the, and who gets lost in it all. And this episode does a really 
interesting job of never really letting you get to know Beverly Jean except through these interviews, right? Yeah. They're the only people who can speak for her. And the picture you get is of this gorgeous, intelligent, funny, amazing girl who is stuck in this terrible place. And out of all the people that she has to run into, she finds a nice young guy, Benji, but little does she know that the worst guy in town is his brother and brother-in-law, <laughs> right? And she becomes violated by this entire family. Yeah. You know, it's as if the entire, it's as if the the city itself did this to her. And that's how this, sh- this, I think this is such a great episode because it communicates an idea Um of America and of crime in America, of crime against women, that this episode does a brilliant job of purposefully not showing you her picture a lot. You know what I mean? Just letting Mm -hmm. people describe her. Yeah, that's great. And, and, you know, in who knows if she saw a weak Benji and wanted to use him for whatever she wanted as she, you know, did her hair for other people and, 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 but not knowing the family was just not quite, uh, yeah, we don't know. Right. One. So low, like we yeah. have no idea. She could have been madly in love with him and everything that they're describing about doing her hair and everything is total bullshit. And they're just degrading her. Or it could yeah. have been that she met him, she kind of liked him, but she knew she could get out of this town. So, yeah, she was fooling around with some other guys, but that doesn't make her terrible. You know what I mean? So it's no, just... No, she's young. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the Unfortunately, lengths. it's... Yeah. yeah. But, but you're right, though. We don't know because, you know, everything's pictured in a way... They're painting this picture. Oh, she's so sweet. She was nice, but yet she's at a bar. She's, you know... You don't know from Frank's point of view, she was, you know, a slut and she, you know, so it's all everyone else's perspectives. And so we really don't know. Yep. And that's why that conversation at the bar that Holden and Tension Okasik have is so important because one of the things that Holden said, Holden is kind of like, well, so what? Because a woman would if you look good or want to have sex with different men, does that make her what Frank is saying a slut? When does a man become a slut? These kind of ideas now in 2019, we know very well, but at that point in time, I think that it was kind of a conversation where Holden comes out looking very progress, extremely progressive when he's just basically giving a woman any type of agency you know, mm-hmm. and from Frank's perspective, um, it, it's impossible for a woman to have any agency. She is, it's the old virgin or the whore syndrome, right? She can only mm-hmm. be one of these two things. It's the extremes. And uh, yeah. that kind of shows, you know, what Holden is kind of saying, like society holds these extremes, not just Frank. Right. And, and wow, it, it, it's, you know, it, you do have to place yourself back to 1977, uh, even if you're not young enough and you're watching this show, 
but it, it's just compared to 2019, it's just so so amazing how society has changed through just information we've gathered of living and social media and just television and or so and, we think right until well yeah until, and so we think it has it yeah yeah, yeah. but it, it's just interesting because you know when they're looking at that one stranger that lady at the bar and then um you know they're they're mo- in a sense profiling her what why is she there alone yeah. you know maybe she just wants a drink you know she's yeah. in a bar she's having a drink well you know that's that's not right and you know <laughs> it's all this stuff so um I, I, speaking of that, I, I do want to uh, cross over to Holden questioning Debbie. Uh, like you said, she was on speed. She was studying and they're having coffee. And then Holden does the thing that you shouldn't do, asking how many, how many, how many <laughs> men you slept with. Yeah. And he's questioning her, and she's like, "Don't let's not do this." And he, you know, you're seeing uh, what his profiling and his work and his getting into people's minds and he's bringing it home and he's using it to her and it's just it it feels so uncomfortable and you're like i'm sure most men have done that where they feel a little insecure or they're moving on a relationship they want to know what's happening and they ask those questions they shouldn't they (laughs) think they want to know the answer but you really don't (laughs) you know and it's like unfortunately it takes maturity and probably age to be like hey what happened before you it's you know and that's what even rose says about frank uh hey what happened that's his past you know with the the girl and the the juvie record or whatever um you know she has that notion of hey i don't want to know about the past i'm living in the present with you know where you know holden uses is it wants to know about the past yeah. And so I don't know if that's going to begin a rift. Debbie's definitely, as we talked before, another last episode of the one before, where it just Debbie's a different breed, and you have to. There's you can't be this macho, possessive, ask questions she doesn't want to answer type thing. She's just not going to uh, deal with that, especially the way he approaches it. Yeah, um, and it's so, funny, Solo, because he the way. Um, it's like he he tra- he answered these questions as if he is separate from it, right? Like it's unemotional, like he's mm-hmm. trying to be at work, right? Like, oh, okay, I can handle this, you know? Yeah. And then Debbie, though, because she's smarter than him, is like, yes. no, you can handle it, Holden. And that's why she immediately knows what that's – you're right. That was a great scene. And, yeah, that really does come from, really, you know, like his insecurities and also thinking – seeing Beverly – hearing about Beverly Jean and then having the conversation – um having all these different conversations about her and the way she acts the same way that Tench is seeing his son in Benji in some way, I believe Holden is seeing uh, Debbie in Beverly Jean, right? That kind of strength, the way she shines brighter. And this is a thing too. I mean, how many times have we seen this story of a girl who, 
a young, beautiful girl who shines bright in a small town and the terrible men who will do anything to possess and destroy her, right? Like this is kind of like an age-old story. And in a sense, Holden is like kind of seeing Debbie in that light and Debbie's kind of like, wake up, Holden. Like stop thinking about, like just be with me. Right? Like, don't think about everything all the time. I want you to live with me and feel with me and not be like, I am now a new subject that you're in the room with. And you can see that that is kind of the way in which he sees their relationship, but that's kind of the way Holden sees all relationships. Hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, speaking of relationships, um, we get it. We get our boy uh, BTK mailing a letter. Yes, we do. Now, again, speaking of relationships, I just like to do a transition, but you know, segue. <laughs> but it ha- has absolutely no freaking. Uh, anyway, so I, is he mailing a letter to the press? Is he mailing a letter to? That's what I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's because at first I'm like. You know, rewatching this, I'm like, okay, he's mailing a letter, zippity doo dah. But I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yes, he's he's doing his uh, press thing, his zodiac. But but it made me uh-huh. think this though, Solo. I don't know if he had, if at this point we're supposed to think that he's killing people yet, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because the other short scenes have only indicated that he's thinking about it. So. I don't know. It makes you. I don't know the case of BTK. So did he actually communicate his desires before he actually killed? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. Because uh, they kind of just drop you into it. Yeah, and yeah. you're not quite sure which I like. If he's yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's like literally, what you know is this letter. I mean, why is he mailing a letter? Why are they showing us him mailing a letter? And I, you know, hopefully we'll find out why. And I'm sure with this show, uh, there's a good chance we will. Uh, but it's, just, it's very interesting. It's something very simple, but I'm sure it, 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 i got to believe it's going to be something that plays later on. Yeah, um, just little, little pieces that we see that um, even, if it's, even if he was just mailing a letter solo, that's kind of creepy. Though I like that they would do that, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, right. You know, other, you know, it doesn't have to be something. It's just a little bit like what happens if you were, if you opened up that door and could see into their life, would everything, would something mundane seem sinister? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Right. I like that one. Interesting. I want to bring up the when they go back to Quantico and talk with Wendy about the standard questionnaire you um, read my mind my friend yeah, this is this becomes incredibly important for the show and so so far Wendy really has had very little to do with what's going on there remember she only just arrived shepherd only just knows that she's there officially right and has acknowledged her Um, she comes from the aspect of research and they are on the tip of holding really just feel the, the drive to want to talk to these men and Tench 
going by the FBI book. So it's really interesting. Right off the bat, they're kind of at odds. And as soon as she says, a standard questionnaire, the first thing Holden says is wing it, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) those words come right. This is really an interesting point. What did you think about this solo? Well, I just, I, I was looking at the reactions of Bill and especially Holden. And the reason the, I guess you could say, I want to say successful, but the reason, um, they're and when they, when they interviewed some serial killers and stuff, it is going with your gut and following, you know, read the tension in the room and, and, and where it's going. And it, it's understandable because, you know, Wendy wants format questions. She, they, she's like you said about research and data. And if we can't compare and we just have all this stuff all over the place, how are we going to be able to construct a through line with all this information? But I, I just realized it was like, it, it was like someone you're at work and someone mentions, Oh, we might make some changes. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't like that. Uh, okay, whatever you say, boss. Yeah, yeah, and I like doing it my way. So, yeah, there. It again with Mine Hunter. Every scene means something. They throw that in there, so it, it definitely seems like as a strong possibility it could, you know, become a problem. Or do they work together to 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 fit them both in? You know, do you do you use the format questions? But then, if you see it, go this way with it. So, um, but I, 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 and then I started thinking, Axel, God, if you if you go in there with format questions and strict structure, you know, maybe some of these serial killers won't. They'll feel like they're being interrogated, yeah, versus just talking. And I think the the, the reason why they were able to get, I mean, Ed Kemper loved to talk, but it was to go in there and just talk to him. Yeah. And you Kemper know, felt the even... connection. He felt that actual. Yes. Yeah. You can't, you know, Solo, that's true. You can't have, if we were to do this podcast by us saying every episode, we're going to ask the same questions, you know, it wouldn't make any sense because what happens if one of our questions is like, what is Tench's wife doing this episode, but then she's not in four episodes. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. They're trying to find, you're right. They're trying to find their way around it. And they're also trying to find the way around working together, not only working together, but their work dynamic is, is not completely clear who's in charge, who's in charge of that, right. Who leads. Um, Well, you know, who's in charge, Axel. Yeah. We all know Charles who's in, in charge. charge. Charles. Of our days and our lives. And our lives, yeah, yeah. Well, for actually for Holden, it is Charles. Charles Manson, right? We'll get to <laughs> yeah, that one good. later. Um, hey! That's hey. true. Don't skip ahead. Uh, but this immediately be, really does become a central issue, which is when to go off book and when to stay on. And it's something that they're going to be working with. And it also brings up immediately another central issue, which is Wendy wants them to keep on interviewing people and do research. And they really are, what is this whole episode about? Beverly Jean, a case, an actual case that's happening, which is not her purview. She is not a cop. She is a researcher. 
So whenever she talks about the these, um, when she eventually, I should say in this episode, talks about the case with Holden, it's as if it is just a case study, right? And it's up to Holden and Tench to translate that to talking to actual human beings, which is, again, like, I'm kind of on Holden and Tench's side immediately. Were were you on their side or how did you, or were you like on Wendy's side? No, we have to do it this way. No, I'm on their side. Yeah, I, yeah. But I see her point. Especially with my personality and stuff. I mean, I see her point and, but... You know, and that's the thing. They're breaking new ground here, and it could go in any direction. And Wendy's trying to get a hold on what it should be, and it's, you know. And, I, again, I mean, she's listened to the tapes. That That's that's the thing that I'm like, wait a minute. She listens to the tapes to see how much they're getting out of people, yeah. but yet she wants to go to format questions. How does she not think that won't work? Is she that strict in her mind to say – no, no, this is how we have to do it. This will work. Like, I'm surprised she's not more, hey, let's go with the flow. I know she right. that's not her background, but if she's so damn smart as she portrays she is, and she is, but is she book smart or is she, you know, real world smart? Again, I think that's why the three of them coming together works uh, because they have, all, you know, uh, you know, different their their strengths are in different areas, but I, I just you know why is she why is she doing this and and not seeing and not compromising? But you could but, see her. I could see her point of view a little bit. And my wife is a a research scientist, whereas I could say she could say, well, okay, Holden, like pretend you're Holden and I'll be Wendy, and I'll say, well, Holden. Right here, though, instead of asking another yet another question about weird sex stuff, you could, you could have slid in a standard question. Like you're right, they're both because it's so new and they're both so excited. Neither side is looking for the middle ground. They're looking to show their point, right? Because it's early in the argument. And I think Wendy, in this case, maybe even in the show, is kind of taking the role of the institution. And that. No, she is. Yeah. She is. I just don't understand if why she can't get her information through what they get. Oh, you their, mean by interpreting it? Yeah. yeah that's like, interesting. Wh wh yeah. Why is that so wrong? Why does well, it have to be. It's a good point, Solo. That's a good point. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out yeah. there, buddy. I like it. I like what you're saying. That is a kind of that is kind of a middle way, which is for even Holden to say to her, "Well, Wendy, your part of what you do is analyze. We can't always ask a direct question, but they're giving you the answer. Just listen." Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. and, and like you don't have to just give. Yeah. So, what did you have for breakfast today? Exactly. It's like, man, I was hungry. Uh Man, I That's had a great thing. Important. Did you have something to eat? You know, yeah. like just in a different way. But, right. you know, again, maybe they, they've only worked together a certain time. It, they're not going to have all the correct answers how to do stuff. True. They're going with what they know. And, and the so they format, have to come yeah. together. And the format of the yeah. show is, in the, you know, the drama format. They want to highlight to us the differences here. And by showing these main differences, research – 
versus the field, right? Questionnaire mm-hmm. versus winging it. Um, it shows that we were so excited at the end of the last episode, right? They're working together. Oh my God, they're going to take yeah. on the world in the elevator. But guess what? <laughs> elevator going to break down. Oh no, let's go. Crazy like 1999. Wow, that's a loud beeping going on over there. So yeah, well. <laughs> welcome to my life. Okay. Welcome to my life. I swear. Wow, let's keep gr- it in the podcast. I'm swear gr- I'm swear garage trucks. You, you'd think they'd come one day and do the whole street or whatever. But no, I think they just come every day. I think every building has its own garage truck. Oh garbage. Like you I'm mean garbage Altoona, truck? Pennsylvania. What? <laughs> you mean garbage truck? Yeah, what was I saying? Garage truck. Garage <laughs> truck. Well, you know, those beeping get to you, Folo. I know, I'm in dude. Altoona. I know. I could feel it. I could feel it. Man, I'm the same way. When there's like incessant noise, I lose my mind, dude. I can't. I can't. Oh. It's like my, when my, my one dog barks in like an exact same cadence every time. Oh, there we there go it goes again. again. <laughs> there we go. Yay, everyone. Welcome to Daily DVR. He's getting attacked by Does- a garage truck. <laughs> it's like, honestly, like I, I can hear sounds, people talking, everything. All together, but one distinct sound like that is just like it's torture. It, it gets you, dude. This is very mind hunter esque. The way it's that repetition, you know, it's like Kemper. The way he just keeps on going, like you know, it'll weigh it weighs you down like water. Um, but let's keep All right, it going. Well, I'm yeah, I, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go. Let's wrap this up so I can uh, go take <laughs> these people out and shove. Anyway. So uh, that's I, all I have, Folo. Is there anything you want to touch before we close out the show? Yes. In the car, Holden takes Wendy to the airport, and they touch on not only the case, Wendy actually agrees to kind of do a breakdown of her analysis of the case, which is brilliant, by the way, and she mm-hmm. is brilliant. But they touch a little bit on Holden's feelings and she kind of is becoming almost like a therapist mother co-worker to him. But she says something very important to him. She says, um, he says to her that these killers seem to have no emotions. And she says, the killers have emotions. They just don't think other people have them. They don't think mm. other people have interior lives. And that's an important distinction that a lot of people get wrong. And it's something that is very important for Holden to understand, right? And it connects, mm-hmm. I think it opens him up to understanding and feeling right about when he is empathizing with people like Kemper or someone even like when he gets into it with Frank and starts using their nomenclature and the, the way they describe women, which is that it, it kind of shows that Holden was right. A lot of people think that the killers, they don't have emotions. Like a sociopath is a person who has no emotions, but actually it's a person who thinks other people don't have emotions. So when they hurt them, they don't think that the person is feeling it. They only experience their own interior life. And I think going on throughout Mindhunter, throughout this series, and especially for the character of Holden, it's important to remember that 
that Holden's actually correct and that empathizing and trying to get to the emotional root of these killers is the correct methodology because that is where this all lies. And it's also shows that the reason why people think killers don't have emotions is because it's easier to think that, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to think that someone who hurts and kills can't feel it, but it's just that they don't think the other people have value. And that really, this, that little scene in this episode kind of was so important to me and I think is really important going on. I agree. Definitely, baby. All right. We're going to wrap it up here because the next episode, episode six, we're talking about the same case and it's really a wrap up of the same case. So we're going to talk probably more in depth about the particular case, but thank you everyone for listening. I am Axel Folo. My co-host, of course, is Heath Solo. We're going to be covering Mindhunter all the way through Season 2. You can catch us at DVRpodcast.com. Email us, DVRpodcast at gmail.com. Become a patron, patreon.com slash DVR. Just dropped all nine episodes of The Heisenberg, a Breaking Bad podcast hosted by Heath Solo on our Patreon Getting ready for El Camino to be dropped on Netflix in October. All right, Solo, I'll let you take us out. <laughs> I don't want to leave Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs>